Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pas de Deux. I'm your host, Jessica. And I'm your host, Clara. So, we recently had a fun weekend in Jacob's Pillow. Yeah. And we were unable to make it last year, but generally speaking, we try to go once a year. And every time we go, we just have the best experience. Jacob's Pillow really is this magical place. Yeah. This past weekend did not disappoint. We saw two performances. One was by Gautier Dance, a contemporary dance company from Stuttgart in Germany. And then we also saw another performance, which was a collaboration between a trio of excellent tap dancers, as well as a choreographer, Camille Brown. And that was called... And still you must swing. And still you must swing. (laughs) Yeah, actually, somebody asked me. In fact, it was the photographer whom we met at the cast party at Jacob's Pillow (laughs) who asked me today if we had a fun time or if last year was way better. And uh, I said, well, we actually didn't make it last year, but every year is so great. It really made me stop and think, oh, is there a year that's been better or worse for us? And actually... I think every year we've gone, I've discovered, I was saying this to you guys in the audience uh, after one of the shows, a new favorite company. There was, the first year we went, we saw Jonah Beaucaire, but I don't know if that became like my favorite, but I was very surprised and I loved it. And then we saw Netherlands one year, which Mm -hmm. became my new favorite. I think before that we saw Trois Etages, Paris Opera Trois Etages. Mm -hmm. We saw LEV for the first time at Jacob's Pillow. Uh, and then Michelle Dorrance was two years ago, I think, the last time we went. And now mm-hmm. this year, both Gautier and this And Still You Must Swing collaboration just blew my mind. And yeah. I'm, like, stalking them all over the place now. <laughs> yeah, it's truly great. And I really thought that the And Still You Must Swing performance was really interesting. That was a collaboration with three tap dancers, Dormisha Sumbri Edwards, as well as Jason Samuel Smith and Derek Grant. And they were just phenomenal tap dancers. Mm -hmm. And what I also love about Jacob's Pillow is they provide these really thorough show notes. And in the show notes, it talks a lot about the feeling of swing and the four driving propulsion of swing and how this drives tap dance and this is the feeling that they wanted to to embody in their tap dancing and they chose the show's title which was quoted from a tap dancer jimmy slide in the documentary about tap and so i thought that was just an interesting presentation like i never would have thought swing and tap had anything in common but you could definitely see that they were trying to get this show this rhythmic swing action in their tap dancing which was really fascinating Definitely. And I think the two go together really well. And I might not have thought independently on my own, oh, swing and tap are similar. But once they were paired, it made so much sense to me. I think they both have this very, well, tend to have this very upbeat energy and joyfulness about them, tap and swing as disciplines, um, that kind of make them mesh well on an emotional level, too. Um and the show was just really joyful and really fun to watch. Actually, our friend Daryl said, what I loved about this weekend is throughout both shows, the entire time I was smiling. Mm-hmm. And it was true, I think, for me too. Like I was just, I had a 
big corny grin on my my face the whole time I was watching these performances. Yeah, it was really great. And Gautier Dance presented some interesting choreographers from all over the world. It was really nice to see which choreographers I should learn more about. But one in particular, Cayetana Soto, I'm familiar with his work and it was really great to see his company perform that. And which one was that again? Which piece? That was the one where they were wearing the shorts uniforms and oh, they yeah. were doing like the sultry kind of almost like salsa dance movement. Yeah, they were dressed up like little uh, pol- English policemen. What are they called? That piece was almost like five short pieces together because they had different music mm-hmm. and each piece of music was pretty different. Yeah. And what that piece had in common with many of the other pieces was definitely this element of gestural humor. Mm-hmm. Comedy was a big element of many of the pieces. And sex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you said that after the show, and I was like, yep, actually, even at intermission, every piece had, like, blatant sexuality in it in a way that was funny and really tapped into being alive being human yeah that's a good way to say it that it was just funny (laughs) yeah it was and i loved it um and that just felt like a really unique show and once again i have another company that i have to follow and i'm just loving and feeling kind of obsessed with all right so i think now uh we will go ahead and introduce our guest and get started with kimberly falker Kimberly Falker is the host of Balancing Point Podcast, where she interviews successful and inspiring guests who are living and working in the world of professional ballet and dance. Each episode offers specific takeaway advice for the aspiring dancer and valuable information on the real world of professional dance. Kimberly herself is a Florida native who worked in elementary education before attending law school and building a career as a prosecutor for the Department of Social Services in Boston. During college, she performed in the Florida State Flying High Circus, which is similar to Cirque du Soleil, and I can't wait to hear more about. (laughs) Now, Kimberly is the mother of both an athlete and a serious student of ballet. As her daughter, Cosette, became more focused and passionate about pursuing a future in ballet, Kimberly realized that she needed to learn how to best support and guide Cosette through the world of ballet. Kimberly launched Balancing Point Podcast as a way to learn about the dance world and share her learnings with other students, parents, and of course, anyone interested in dance. Since launching Balancing Point, Kimberly has interviewed over 100 talented and passionate dance makers. Thank you so much for being with us today, Kimberly. Well, thanks for having me. This is really fun to have another dance podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) We've got to help each other out and support each other. That's right. So um, to start, tell us about your podcast and where listeners can find it. So my podcast is called Balancing Point, as you um, mentioned, and that can be found at either balancingpoint, P-O-I-N-T-E, like the point shoot, dot com, or else uh, now on my newly launched podcast. dance network or podcast network called premier dance network and that's at premierdancenetwork.com so that's now kind of housed underneath the network as one of the shows and uh so we can talk about that later but um so those are the two locations for for that um for my shows for my episodes great and what is premier dance network it is the only um, podcast network that is dedicated solely to dance, and I currently have eight shows in the network, including mine and including the Ask Megan show, which was originally housed within the Balancing Point podcast. 
Um, and then within the next, I guess, eight weeks, I should have another three shows up. So um, it's kind of my goal is to build a one-stop shop for all things dance. And so what I do is I bring in new hosts and then I produce their shows. So they just send me the audio file and then I pull in the music and the intros and outros and edit it down and then produce it for them. So it's kind of a, it's, it's exactly that. It's a network of dance-related podcasts. It really is a one-stop shop if you're providing so many services to these podcasters. Mm-hmm. And also for the listeners. My goal ultimately is to have... Um, my bigger picture is to build a uh, an app, not me build it, but <laughs> built so that you know somebody can click on their smartphone and just tap into whatever variety of shows that they're in the mood for. Um, you know, whether it be an advice show, a show from a choreographer, um, a show just about. I've got, like I said, I've got one show that's called Becoming Ballet, and so it's a it's a show that's kind of uh, created from young dancers that are just on the cusp of making it but it's kind of like reality tv style so what they do is they just record almost diary style what's going on and so every month i have a different featured dancer who it's their month to just kind of um, reveal what's going on and all the dancers that apply and make it onto the show are kind of at that trainee level or just you know really serious about making it and they're kind of right about there but not quite there and so it's really been a fascinating um show we launched that i think in january and so i i do i do all of that but i bring in the 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 dancers and such but then like a james whiteside has his own show and i produce it but he just all of his interviews are done by himself on his own and he does all of his interviews in his dressing room at the met for the season that just ended and then he's so that was his first season of his shows and then he's going to do a next season when he's on the road so i've got a variety of different shows if you want to take a look it's really quite fun very cool that's great i love that um and so when you say you want to build an app that almost sounds like a stitcher radio or an itunes app but exclusively for this dance network right right wow i love that very yeah cool. so then like you know instead of having to search in itunes or hope that in itunes or somewhere else somebody happens upon it those that are fans can just go straight to the app and whatever shows are are on the network they can just kind of choose pick and choose as they go wow yeah Good it's ideas. fun yeah that's amazing and yeah it's been it's been a huge success thus far it's a lot of work <laughs> it's been a huge learning curve and um yeah, it's it's. I kind of dove in a little bit without looking, but that's kind of the way I live my life, and so I <laughs> <laughs> kind of it's happening fast. But that's really fun. It kind of validates that it's a good idea because everybody that I've reached out to to be a potential host has either said yes for sure or else yes I want to, but not right now. I'm too busy. But most people, like Catherine Morgan, is one of the hosts on the network, and she was like, mm-hmm. she said that she had just been thinking about putting something together, and so what I'm able to do is kind of. As you guys know, the work that goes into this and the learning curve mm-hmm, is so mm-hmm. steep and it's really, really hard to figure out all of it. But um, yeah. I'm able to marry my experience in podcasting with their expertise. You know, I, I can only do so much by interviewing other people, but these people are the, the ones that are living it. So it's, it's kind of a nice perspective to hear from them, too, on a regular basis. That's great. And I was going to say, too, that really does sound like that is a lot of work, building a mm-hmm. podcast <laughs> network and just 
dealing with so many moving parts and different interviewers, etc. Yes, and I'm not a huge detail-oriented person, so to systematize myself has been the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, that brings up so many more questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry. <laughs> but um, how did you come up with the idea to start your initial podcast, and then how did that morph now to your idea to start this podcast network? So the original idea um, was I was an avid absorber of podcasts. I, I loved listening to them and that became my go-to form of content um, or absorbing content. So in, before the um, Bluetooth was so avid in the cars, you know, I bought a little a, a thing that I could hook into the car to be able to listen to it. But then my current car is able to, you know, have it with just a little plug-in with auxiliary cord. But um, anytime I'd go out running or doing laundry or grocery shopping, even I was always listening to podcasts. And um, one of the guys that I follow still, who has really created, uh, he's kind of like the king of creating a whole different, um, I guess, definition of what you can do with podcasts, because he's monetized it to a very, very wealthy degree. But he was the first ever out of the gate to do a seven day a week podcast. And so I started listening to him. He just, um, his podcast called entrepreneurs on fire. And so he just, uh, interviews entrepreneurs. And so I, it was a perfect amount of time because it was 30 minutes. So it was kind of the magical time of a commute or a run or, you know, half the tasks you do. So in his, um, authenticity of his show, he started talking about how anybody can do this. We all should do this. And so I started becoming obsessed about wanting to, create a podcast, but I didn't know what I wanted my subject matter to be about. So I had a couple of different ideas, but at that time it happened also coincide with when my daughter for the first time decided that she wanted to, um, we live in Minneapolis, but she wanted to go to Chicago for the bigger auditions, the aspiring ballerina daughter. And so, um, she convinced me to go there. She knows how to work me because she suggested that, um, my one of my very best friends daughter also is a dancer she said that we could all go together and have a girls weekend in chicago and also do auditions and so i agreed to do it and she wanted to do two auditions one of them being um, school of american ballet which i'm also a researcher by heart so i started researching all the stats on it because she was said oh wouldn't it be great if one day i ever got in and so i didn't want to set the sites incorrectly. I didn't understand the process whatsoever. Like, when do you go away? What, you know, what to expect from an audition? You know, what are the chances of, you know, I just didn't understand it because it's kind of, you know, it's a mysterious world. It's not like baseball. You can pull up the manual and how to get to to college for baseball. (laughs) Like with ballet, it's so esoteric. It's so under, I can't understand it. And so I started doing a bunch of research and found out that it's like 11.5 chance of her ever getting into SAB. So, <laughs> so we went and, you know, she was only 13 or she was turning 13 that summer. So she was 12 during the auditions. I was not intending, we were not intending on sending her away at that age. And of course, lo and behold, she got in. And then I felt like, well, gosh, that's kind of the the Harvard of the summer programs because, you know, that might be her one and only chance of ever having that opportunity. So, of course, then we figured out how to make it work. It's like anything. Once you open the door to an experience, you can't undo it and close that again. (laughs) It's like, okay, once you go away the first summer, you're never going to stay home again. So, 
So that's kind of where my obsession began of trying to figure out the world. Well, then that coincided with my obsession over podcasts. I thought, well, heck, who better than to interview those that have made it in the world if I'm trying to figure out how to help guide somebody who wants to make it in the world. So what is that secret sauce and what makes them the success versus somebody else? And, you know, it'd be like interviewing Olympic athletes, really, in my opinion. So my first round of it was to, I had written out a list of all those that maybe I wanted to interview and they were like the third, fourth, fifth tier. I thought, oh, well, a local studio teacher. You know, I, I didn't even think that I could touch the real people, in my opinion, the real people, that sounds demeaning to those that aren't, but you know what I mean, like the like the elite athletes. But then just on a whim, um, again, I'm kind of a leap without looking, I just started looking at social media and, and just pulling up the biggest companies and looking through the bios and with no system, I just started randomly <laughs> private messaging people. And I started getting responses from prestigious dancers and my very very first interview was with T. Telemetz who's a principal dancer of San Francisco Ballet and he was to this day still one of my favorite interviews because I was so darn nervous and his interview was just so amazingly insightful and beneficial and you know exactly what I wanted so that kind of started it all off and so from there I just kept reaching out and then my big win for me personally was when I got Megan Fair Fairchild because my daughter had her poster over her bed for years. So it was like this, like, oh my gosh, I actually have somebody that I recognize, you know, because I don't know the ballet world personally, and I've become way, way more knowledgeable now, but at that time I didn't know. And so that interview was so much fun. And then, you know, ultimately down the road, it led to us kind of creating a friendship. Um, one, uh, my daughter wound up going to SAB two summers and her second summer there, we were going to do a point shoe giveaway. And so she was at Saratoga and she met my daughter to give her the point shoes that she had signed as the giveaway. So it's, it's just these little moments that you have. And then she emailed me one day and asked if I could give her advice on, or if I could help her in creating a blog and writing a blog on an advice blog. And so then at that moment I said, well, instead of a blog, how about a podcast with an advice and so now that's where the ask megan show came from and so now we have a weekly advice show so it's, it's been a just a kind of an organic growth without really any official planning <laughs> if that makes sense and now what's really fun is i'm i get requests from people and i'm, I'm able to now i guess have some authority to be able to tap into almost everybody except for probably Misty Copeland because she's pretty shrouded in <laughs> in her her uh, people right now. So other than that, most everybody seems to be accessible. Definitely. And that actually accords with a lot of our experience. We just started drawing from our own personal network, but one reason kind of behind the launching of the podcast or one thought process was this world is not well covered. And these are some of the best athletes in in the world in the world so it's right. actually they're actually way more accessible than i think the top athletes in other uh disciplines um right. and even more important to expose so that people right. understand yeah they, you know, i think part of it is when they're not making the big bucks of some of these major athletes they don't have the agents they don't have the the people surrounding them protecting their money you know because yeah. these are just you know they're fighting to keep their marketing up so that if you know they're one injury away from having to figure it out differently you know yeah 
That's an interesting way to see it, too. They are. And just for our timeline, exactly when did you start the podcast? I launched it December 2013. So it's it's been like three years-ish, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting that you had your podcast obsession even back then, because <laughs> I've I thought everybody was up on podcasts by now, but I actually get a hugely mixed response even now from people mm-hmm. when I tell them I have a podcast. Some people are not familiar with the concept of a podcast, and then some listen right. every day to everything. Right. <laughs> and I think that that's what's interesting, too, because when I first started, nobody, like, I had to say that it was online radio, even though it's really not, because what's different about this and radio is it's, um, as you know, the content is evergreen, you know, because... It's, it's going to, you can go on to iTunes and see shows that haven't produced a new show for years and years and they're still out there, you know? So, but I think that's what's beautiful about it is everybody's story is still going to be alive, you know, for years to come, even if they've retired, moved on that, you know, it's, I think it's a really great legacy for everybody I've talked to versus like a magazine article is wonderful but it's not quite as rich you don't quite get to know somebody and a radio interview goes away um but this is my observation and also based on some things that i've read recently but it seems like the podcast serial that was Mm -hmm. featured as a podcast a standalone podcast but i guess it was produced through a partnership with npr that seemed to open the floodgates and make podcasting or the idea of listening to a podcast that much more mainstream. And that was only a couple of years ago, maybe not even yeah. two full years ago when that was released. So it is interesting to see. Right. And I think that in addition to the fact that the iPhones now have it as an app that you can't take off. So then people are seeing that as something that is. And then same is um, now that all the cars have the ability to stream it without it, you know, having the same, you can download before you leave the house and it's not pulling from your data and you can actually listen in your car. And so it's, it's a far more accessible uh, way to, to absorb content because when I first started, it was not nearly as accessible. And even the, the tools, like I said to you earlier, like the portable microphones and, and the quality of the smartphones now are such that you can have a, super awesome interview without having to have all the equipment that that I have or you have and all of my hosts um every single host uses um uses their iPhone and they use the voice memos and they send it to me via email so the quality of their sound is pretty good and nobody's using any professional equipment no actually one of my hosts has professional equipment but of the of the eight, only, you know, one out of eight. Well, me, so two out mm. of eight. <laughs> How, really? So can they record up to an hour and still email it to you? Is the file size that small? Um, nobody does that long of a show. You know, my, my, I encourage, my shows are longer than anybody else's, but I encourage people's show to be shorter just because I'm learning so much as I go along that um, people's attention span is shorter and I, I think the kind of the science is that you want it to be like I said earlier the amount of time that a person typically works out maybe times two you know depends or commutes and so the average commute time is like 26 minutes you know so it's, it's kind of a people I've heard also feedback from mine so on some of my shows I've broken it up into two parts but there's no perfect science I mean there's certainly 
some shows out there like a Joe Rogan that's like three hours. So, you know, it's like that's, the, in my opinion, the beauty of podcasting is that it's not yet at least a super restricted form of, of you know, providing content. It might change along the way, but thus far, it's nice to provide free value to other people and not have to have rules about that either. Definitely. Yeah, and I kind of like your role now in this dance podcasting network where you are sort of empowering people to create their own podcast. You're saying, look, it is easy Mm -hmm. and you don't need Mm -hmm. incredible technology. Just do it and produce information about dance. And that's a very noble cause. Well, from from my standpoint, though, I think that what I do is I help them uh, overcome the hurdle because, as you know, the editing, it's the time-consuming piece that really eats up, you know, for, as you guys know, for every interview you do, if it's an hour-long interview, you typically have, you know, five to six hours of process between downloading editing, mixing down music, and then the follow-up of putting it onto a website and marketing it. So, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of time that goes into it that I'm taking away from them having to do. So, you know, I, I do all the production work for them. So I'm able to allow them to have the artistic piece of it without having to do the grueling time constraints that they don't have and nor do most people want to take the time to learn because as you know it's a huge learning curve to learn this stuff and I'm still learning but you know I'm I'm way more advanced than most people are because of having done it for three years now. Wow so you have extra time in your day where do you find it? (laughs) Well it's kind of what I'm doing full time to be honest with you I mean besides being a parent which obviously takes a lot of time especially a parent of a dancer because there's a lot of driving but right now my daughter is in Boston for five weeks. So that just frees up a ton of time. <laughs> She's at Boston <laughs> Ballet, isn't she? For yeah, the summer yeah. intensive. That's a great one. Yeah. I did that one. <laughs> yeah. So she's there. And um, so now I'm down to one child. So that helps a lot because it just eliminates half of half of the driving time. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what I really like about what you're doing too is that not only are you facilitating the output of information for others, but you're helping people to expand the conversation. Uh, and I don't think we even realized how important that is and how much needed it is in the dance community until we started our podcast. And mm-hmm. we started getting this feedback from all of our guests that they wanted to have these conversations and they wanted to have more cross-discipline conversations with other dance makers. They wanted to share their story. They wanted to feel like there was a dialogue happening in the world of dance. And they often didn't have that opportunity because um, we heard from one guest, I remember in particular, uh, their world can be a little bit insular within their own discipline or their own company. Oh, for sure. Or Or even with their own company, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they've really appreciated being able to just come on and talk about their experience and then listen to other people's experience Mm -hmm. as a form of dialogue and even just have a dialogue with among the three of us in the room. And you're allowing people to go out and you're saying, have more conversations. Let's spread this conversation everywhere. So it's also about the participation, I think, of everyone involved. It's true. And what I've found really fascinating, just like how small the world is, you know, you know, Nell had been on my show. And then before I knew that Margaret Mullen had reached out to her, she's doing this documentary. um, I had Maggie on my show, but then I wound up, they were um, filming together or working on the film together in Seattle. 
and so then I wound up doing a, a, a com yeah, having both of them on together on my show so it's really fun to have two previous guests on together but it's also I love seeing the crossover of how everybody knows everybody in the dance world and um, I just mentioned that you had, you guys had had Reed on your show, I had him on my show, and then James Whiteside interviewed him on his show because he's a costume designer um, for for one of the um, dances or one of the programs I did at ABT this last season. So it's just really fun to hear, um, or even like I know that you guys had Ask Lacour on, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know I had Ask on my show twice for di two different reasons, but it's fun to hear them express different um you know our questions are different so their story still comes out the same but totally different you know yeah. I, and i love yeah. that because i think it's still like you said it keeps the conversation alive and i think it keeps the information about what it takes to be in this world it's just shocking sometimes yeah. to think about so much goes into it Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting that you tapped into this parental perspective, too, because that wouldn't have really occurred to me. But it's so true that with ballet, there's there are all these specific rules and just there's specific processes mm -hmm. that a parent would really need to understand. I mean, it's more mm -hmm. intense, I think, than even a lot of athletics in terms of sending your kid away to camp, but oh, also maybe sending them away at an early age when they would, yeah. even before I mean, they at, would normally at, be at like 12, turning 13, going to New York City and, you know, assuming that it's going to be fine, but it, it's scary, <laughs> you know, and for five weeks. And of course, you know, like most parents, I would think if their kid is having fun, you don't hear from them at all, so you kind of don't want to hear from them, but at the same time, you're yearning to hear from them, you know? And, you know, the only time I hear from my daughter is when her debit card is running out of money. So. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's it's been a fun... I mean, I've had a ball with the summers because um, it's brought us... It's allowed us as a family to go on some really incredible family trips when we either drop her off or, or pick her up or both. And so, you know, what better than to be immersed in these amazing cities because your child has an opportunity to be there for five weeks because then you have to go there at some point. You know, That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. So it sounds like when you started three years ago, um, this was before the advent of Serial and maybe not as many people right. were into listening to podcasts. How have you seen your listenership grow over the years? And and now it sounds like you've sort of created a podcast scene unto itself. But how have mm -hmm. you also seen the scene grow in addition to this network that you've started? Well, it was really interesting because when I first started, I was the only one. And it was... Hmm. Um, I kind of had a little bit of podcast FOMO, fear of missing out, because a lot of the other podcasters that were in like the business world or the self-help world, there was a lot of ability for them to cross over and interview each other on each other's shows and promote each other's shows. And kind of there was a kind of like a, a fraternity, if you will, of podcasters that were all building and accelerating their listenership so fast because they were able to really cross promote. Mm -hmm. And I felt very alone. And it, as you know, when you're doing stuff behind a screen, I could see the downloads were happening, but the interaction was not happening. And I think partly was because it was just more of a, a entertainment 
you know, I wasn't, I wasn't mm-hmm. teaching somebody something. So somebody wasn't coming. I wasn't the authority. It was the people I was talking to were the authority. So people weren't coming to me for coaching or help. So I kind of felt like a little bit alone. And it wasn't until I um, actually took a break mm-hmm. and thought, well, nobody really cares anyway. I was getting a little burnt out. And then I started getting messages on Facebook or Twitter or emails and saying, where'd you go? I miss you. And it's like, oh, I actually do matter. So, you know, it it took a while. Uh, I started off this journey with a partner and that didn't wind up working out. So then I was alone. And I'm, like I said before, I'm not really a good detail person. So then I'll, she, I was doing the interviews and she was doing the, the technical stuff. And so then I was mm-hmm. having to try and learn all of it. And it became really overwhelming really quickly. And uh, like I said, when I didn't hear, you know, interaction or any feedback, I really started thinking that it was a waste of time and money. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. ultimately when I took a break and then I wound up going to, um, couple of conferences for podcasters and that really revitalized me and then I started learning you know more about how to kind of do better at interacting and more consistency and then I wound up at a big conference last year um, being asked I was asked to be one of the speakers and so then that made a huge difference because they said you can be a speaker here they had a lot of applicants and I applied they said you can be a speaker but you have to show consistency you can't take breaks and so then that just really helped me kind of kick kick me in the butt and also to be honest with you when I brought Megan on that shifted it also for me because a it kind of again validated that I was doing something correct but then b I owed it to her not to mess up and not to take any breaks and and to be consistent so it was really helpful to bring somebody else in to collaborate with. So I found that that made all the difference. And then when I did the speaking, and there's a, a guy that's in the podcast world, and he, he focuses on the world of horses. And he was the one that really kind of mentored me into starting a network for dance because he said it's very similar. And he has a, a podcast network. And so he kind of gave me that idea. Um, what, what conference was it? And what's the name of uh, the- A podcast movement. Okay, awesome. It's a really great one. Um, next year it's in California, so if you guys, um, this year it was in Chicago, and I had tickets, but then life got in the way, and I just there was too many moving parts in my life right now. Yeah, and um, what's the the guy who has the podcast about horses? What is his name, or what's his podcast name? His um, his uh, network is called the um, Horse Radio Network, cool. and his kind of tagline is Glenn the Geek, and he's got. Huh. He's been doing it now for, I think, eight or nine years, and so he really has it down. But he really was the one that suggested to me um, that I that I go for this because he said that the horse world, in many ways, is very similar to the dance world where you have extremely loyal participants and people spend a l- their whole life focusing on it, and it's an expensive sport mm-hmm. compared to some others. And so he said that it's one that... And so he has a, a similar model where he has hosts that are within the world of, of horses and they come in. So, but yeah, so you asked about my listenership or how that shifted. Um, one thing I can say is, and you probably experienced this too, is it's a very loyal listenership. And while it's expanding, those that listen come back week after week after week and they might not always be interacting 
but you know, I, I, I know I know the loyalties there by the interactions that I do get. And what I'm having a fun time with now is that because of the network with each new show, I'm expanding the audience. And so I'm seeing what they call the network effect where anybody launches a show, like a, a new episode. If somebody does a new episode on Monday, all the shows get a spike. That show gets the highest spike, but all the shows are affected. So I can tell that the listenership is growing across the network. Um, especially because my download numbers have doubled in like two months. Uh, wow. And so it really was not on any one particular show, but with each show. And so every time somebody like um, Lauren Fad Fadley is one of my hosts. And so every time she, you know, does a shout out on Instagram or something, it helps all the numbers. So it's kind of a nice thing. It's a nice community feel in that way. That's awesome. I mean, that actually gets at a question I had uh, mm -hmm. about how you marketed your podcast throughout the journey and um, maybe advertised or how you targeted specific groups to grow that listenership. I really have only done um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Wow. I should do Snapchat, but I just, you know, I don't have... The, the discipline and mm. I should do Pinterest but it just for I don't know why but that social media platform has never grabbed me and I don't know why and I know that dance would be an automatic thing for that mm -hmm. and I should also probably add in videos but I can only handle as much as I can handle so because right. it's just me I don't have a team I don't have anybody working for me at all so until I until I start to until the monetization comes into play, I you know I can only do what I can do. Once I build out, I've got a lot of ideas, but I can't do it until I can. You know? right. yeah. So it sounds like you've just sort of really let the podcast grow organically over time. While yes, a hundred percent. Yes, yeah. I mean, I did write a book. I I did an ebook that helped. Um, it was a. It was called Secrets to Successful Auditions. And I put it out right at the time where all the summer intensive auditions were happening. So it's it really, the book is about how to, how to have a successful summer intensive audition. And I wrote it from my perspective, all based on all of my information, my knowledge, and my years of experiencing it. And then the thing that I could do that somebody else could not do in writing this book is I added in 25 quotes from... 25 of my guests that spoke directly about auditions so then so then that was the one thing you know kind of the thing that i have that somebody else doesn't have is i have access to these people and this information and it was their specific audition quote so so then for you know i've got it on um kindle and amazon but those sales aren't you know it wasn't really about the money it was more about the exposure and the authority and so because of that i was able to um expand some of my um, listenership because I promoted that and put it out in in emails and you know I promoted that so then I got and allowed them to um, download it for free so for that reason when you give something away for free then you get you know more exposure so and I wanted to go back to something you said um, a little bit ago you had mentioned sort of someone had told you to be consistent and not take any breaks and you said mess anything mm -hmm. up could you elaborate on that more the way it's been kind of equated and I totally get it but I think that we also are human and sometimes we have to forgive ourselves if we don't do it perfectly especially if this isn't um, 
your full-time job or this is not where you're making your income. You try and do the best you can. But I think that the way that I've heard it equate is if you had a favorite TV show and you tuned in on Monday night to watch your favorite TV show and they're like, oh, sorry, life got in the way. We can't do it this week. You know, you would lose a lot of your audience. And so I think that's the biggest concern with podcasting is that if you aren't consistent, nobody knows how to trust you or trust your word and you potentially lose an, an audience member or a listener that might be difficult to get back, if at all. Um, so that's that's really the main reason behind that that rule is that if you're not consistent, then you just you lose your steam and you lose your credibility, so to speak, as a professional. And that does relate to audience engagement and building your audience in general. Right. Well, it's kind of like parenting. Like if you say the, if you say something and you're not consistent, then it takes. What do they say? Like. If you break your your rule that you said, it takes like three weeks to fix yeah. and prove again that you can do it. So it's just what it does is it takes away that momentum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you might be able to rebuild it, but it just takes longer. Right. That's a very good point or a good way to present that. When you are approaching an interview, tell us a little bit about your interview process and how you get your guests to open up with you. I don't know how I get them to. I think that I've always been good at that, and that's perhaps why elementary teaching was a good field for me, and then I was very good in the courtroom, and I was good at oh. questioning. I did a lot of, um, the, the law school I went to, I specialized in trial advocacy, so I was involved in a lot of um, national trial competitions. So I think just, I enjoy, I mean, I, I do this in life anyway, just because I really like people's stories. It's always been my thing. I was an avid backpacker in Europe, and so I I loved just getting to know people. So that's just, that's something that I'm good at in life anyway. And hmm. so I, what I find fun or challenging is when I'm speaking to somebody that is tough to break through. And... I've found that to be the case with sometimes um, folks that are from like Eastern Europe. It's just, you know, it's kind of their upbringing is a little bit different. But that's when, you know, you I've just always been able to figure that out or, or shift the style of questioning or the, the direction of the questioning. I think the key for, for me with the, with the dancers is to be, I guess, dummy it down and let them know that I'm not there to promote their latest production or performance. And I really don't know. So um, again, maybe going back to elementary ed teaching, if they say something that I know is not, all of us in our world, we learn to speak fluently at the life that we're living. But if you're not a dancer, you don't know some of these Terms And so I try and remember that not everybody in the audience or pretend that everybody in the audience might not even know anything about dance. So I want it to be accessible to anybody, a non-dancer up to a dancer. And so I, I usually try and bring it down and you remind them of that a couple of times and then they start shifting the way they present it. And really it's, for me personally, what has worked wonderfully well is that I remind them that the podcast is uh, is about inspiring a, a, an aspiring dancer to you know it's it's teaching the next generation of dancers what to do what to think you know how to go about it how to be successful so really it's I think that dancers open up a lot more because they know the mission is about the next generation right and it does seem like you do have a clear mission behind specifically what you're doing with your podcast and also as we have 
mentioned in your bio. Overall, what would you say is your greatest goal or greatest goals when you're interviewing a guest and how does that come out into your overarching goal for the podcast? Well, you know, that's kind of shifted. In the beginning, it was I was a little bit more um, about their journey. And what I've learned now is that the journey is, I try and, and not make that as long because the journey is interesting, but really it's my overall goal right now is, you know, what makes them different than all the other thousands of kids that wanted that same thing? And, you know, why them and not somebody else? I always ask the same three questions of my guest of, you know, if, if knowing what you know now and the wisdom that you have, going back to your 13-year-old self, what would you tell yourself? And with that same wisdom, what would you tell a dancer today? Because it's not always the same because what is that one person's insecurities might not be what they would tell a dancer. So I think that audition advice is another big one, but really it's it's more about what was that difference maker for them. And, and a lot of times it what I've learned, at least what I've interpreted, is that it's, you know, the preparation, the work ethic of the preparation and being prepared for when the opportunity arises. Because a, a lot of the times their opportunities came at a place or a time that they didn't expect. And if they hadn't have, if they hadn't been ready or if their work ethic wasn't so strong that somebody you know, somebody didn't recommend them because they were not to that degree. So what I found to be the difference, and it, in my opinion, it applies to anybody and anything that they're involved in in life. You know, you you want to be, you want to have the work ethic that somebody would look to you first over somebody else. And then B, you want to be prepared for when it happens to say yes and be able to say yes. So a lot of these people that are out there, so it's the right place at the right time. Like for Fabrice Kamel, he just happened to be in the bathroom. You know, it, just, it was one of these things where it's like life just happened in that moment. And had he not been prepared and ready to say yes, he couldn't have been where he is now. Absolutely. That's really a great theme that you're hitting on and definitely a theme that we have recognized as well among our guests is they do have these moments which are mm -hmm. just by chance but they are ready for it and it's so fascinating to see how they've etched their own path but how the path has found them along the way and you want to be like you want to have a, a reputation such that no we don't have a spot for you but let me make a phone call you know you want it to be such that your your work ethic proceeds so that maybe that opportunity isn't there but you're highly recommended because of how you've shown up every day, every day. And I think that's what I've heard from so many dancers is they were the ones that were reliable, that the director knew that when this principal dancer got injured, that they had shown up in the studio day after day, completely prepared, dancing full out, not just marking it, and that they were there early, stayed late, whatever. They did with it what it took. And so maybe they weren't at the same rank as somebody else, but they turned to them because they showed up the right way day after day. And I think that that's the difference. Yeah, there's that consistency theme again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, sidebar, in my own life, I've noticed that it's so important to display that work ethic in any area, in anything mm -hmm. you're doing, even if it's not your focus. 
mm-hmm. which is something I've struggled with because I kind of have a lot of side things like this that are really right. important to me, but then also also the day job. And there are days where you kind of feel like, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't care as much oh, as I, I do about my podcast, for example. But I've noticed in other people, the people around me in any setting, if I notice they have an amazing work ethic, like I'll think of them for all kinds of things. That's right. Related to anything. So right. I love that that comes up in this context because dance requires such hard work. I think it's yeah. the best place to show how important it is to really like display that work ethic wherever you are. Right. And it's been a great learning or piece of learning for me as a parent and be able to mm. kind of instill not only my daughter but my son as well. But ah. you know, it's it's uh it's been interesting and you know, to be honest with you aside from that, I think one thing that gotten in my personal way with this podcast is um, not in the first year, but in the second year of it, when I was surrounded by so much success and all of these interviews, I started to think that all you have to do is just do what we're doing and it will automatically equate success. And so mm. I think that, you know, to kind of be honest with you, I think that I got a little bit off track and perhaps started, um, I don't want to say pushing because I'm not pushing my daughter in any direction, but I think that I started thinking that you had to do a certain thing at a certain time, and I think that it started getting a little mm-hmm. stressful, like this assumption that this is going to be what she becomes. And, you know, I had to kind of take my, myself out of it and think, okay, wait a second, just because the, these people have made it, it, it doesn't happen easily. And then now at her age, she's now 16, I see now how much more difficult than I ever realized when she was 13. It's like, oh, all we have to do is do this and that. And she's going to be a principal dancer. You know? Yeah. So it's been an interesting awakening for me too. And I, I worry sometimes that I've somehow giving, given my daughter and even some of her peers the false understanding that they have it when maybe they don't, you know, am I fooling mm-hmm. myself? It's really interesting. It is wow. interesting. Wow. Interesting what a journey. I know. I know. <laughs> and and I, I feel kind of sometimes foolish to think that I've, because of talking to successful pe- people, I automatically can assume that that's going to happen or, you know, that I've got now the, the, the secret sauce and I can manipulate it so it works. No, it's it's not up to me at all. You know, so I've I've done a good job in the last year of letting go of that thought, but for it it's been an interesting interesting journey personally too. <laughs> There's definitely that combination of presenting certain steps and certain things people should do, but somehow communicating that yeah, it might not <laughs> lead them to a specific place. Right. right. And, you know, to be honest with you, as a teenager, I'm probably far too much, like, I know far too much about her world, even though I'm not oh. guiding oh. her world anymore. It's her own. But, like, because I'm trying to make sure that I'm up on stuff for my own social media, like, I know about things happening in the world that, you know, she probably would prefer me to just be ignorant. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like one of those things, like, ah, oh, I, I don't talk to her about it. But um, the the best friend that I told you that we went to Chicago, I'll talk to her about it. And then my daughter is like, why do you always talk to her and not me? I said, because I'm trying to stay out of your world a little bit. So I'm not like the mom everywhere. And my daughter, to be honest with you, doesn't listen to any podcast of mine because I don't think she can stand listening to my voice in her ear anymore. You know what I mean? She can along super well. But I'm saying that she's a 16-year-old that doesn't need to have her mom talking all the time. Wow. wow. That's funny. So... Now that you have amassed all of this experience in podcasting, 
What advice would you give to a new podcaster starting out? Or what advice do you give to the podcasters that you're setting up on your podcast network? Well, I think one thing that I learned in the beginning is um, just do it. Don't overthink it. Don't over-prepare. I mean, yes, being prepared, that sounds incorrect. But I think that too often we try and have a perfect produced sound. And it's kind of what I was saying at the top of the show is that um, sometimes the imperfect, you know, a radio show sometimes is better to listen to because it's it's raw and that's kind of the Becoming Ballet show that, that's like the tagline on it. It's raw and unedited. I kind of like that. I feel like I've evolved more in that way. I don't worry about editing or over-editing like I did in the beginning. But I think for podcasters, because the tools are so amazingly evolved in just a few years that you really could just put it out there and then pivot along the way as you need to you know and if you've got a message I mean I think the clearest thing or the most important thing is not to just put something out with no meaning I think really become very clear as to the why behind it and that really was the theme of the the presentation I did at that at that conference was you know if you know your why when you start getting off track and making all your mistakes if you keep going back to your why then it's good so if you really know your why and i think personally from my point of view the the um that's why the name and the logo should all kind of encapsulate that why a little bit somehow and then that's where you get that resonating feeling when you're getting overwhelmed or burnt out or whatever if you pause and you think about your why then i think that that's good and then once you have that down i just say record and either if you don't have the tools or the information or the know-how now podcasting has become so great that there are so many services to help produce you know that you can pay per episode or or even you know join a network but I, I think that people should, if they have something that they want to share or something that's meaningful, then I think go for it. It's great. Don't take too long to do it. <laughs> I'm just drawing a similarity with the nonprofit world where Clara and I mostly exist <laughs> from day to day. Um, it's similar to having a mission-driven service or mission that mm -hmm. you provide. Um, and it makes sense to always return to that why and that mission. And that can evolve to some degree. Like mine has evolved slightly, but really it hasn't, you know? And and, and that's why my balancing point logo is actually um, the yellow dancer in the logo is actually my daughter um, from her first summer at SAB. And that's because that's when it all started. And, you know, that's really the when I look at that, it brings me back to that being the mission as to why I started and what I hope to, how I hope to help the world of dancers or parents. You know, it's if I can just help any parents, maybe whatever it may be, I just, I, that's kind of where it all came from. And that's, and at my presentation, I started off, it was actually really fun. Um, I started off the um, presentation with, uh, it was a little video clip from Megan and I'd asked her to do it for me. And so I had the whole room, some men are in suits, you know, people dressed up, I had them all stand up and Megan gave this little teeny, um, bar routine. She's like, all right, everybody should talk them all the positions. <laughs> and then she did it from her, from her dressing room at, um, when she was in the, um, 
what was the musical she was in? It was on Broadway, and she was in her um, dressing room, and um, she so she had them all like, okay, here's first position, here's second position, and then she did like this. I told her I'm like, then do something really fancy and watch everybody com- get confused. And so she did like this jumpy jump thing, and then she she goes, just kidding, and then she ran back. It was just super cute. So anyway, that's how I started out. But then my first slide for my presentation was my daughter when she was three, when she had her very first ballet. Um, class and so that's kind of what i said my journey started here and then evolved to here and so then i kind of told the story behind it but then it was uh, my presentation was all about the most common mistakes and i've made them all because i made every mistake in podcasting thus far all the major no-nos i've done but i'm still here and that's kind of my thing is like even if you fall off and you were just messing up in every way shape or form just keep coming back. If, if you know your why, then you can write yourself. And I think the audience is more forgiving if you straight stay true to that. Um, so we did want to touch upon the New York Times article that recently came out called Breaking the Glass Slipper, Where Are the Female uh-huh. Choreographers? And this was originally released at the end of June. I believe it was June 23rd, to be exact. And... Essentially, the article posits that female ballet choreographers are not recognized in the highest echelons of the art. And this is namely the large ballet companies such as New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, um, even the Royal Ballet in London, as well as the great Russian ballet companies as well. And we thought this would be an interesting subject to talk about with you because I know that you do interview a lot of people in that world from these upper echelons of the large ballet companies. And just to go into a little more detail, I thought it was really interesting that the article said, um, gave some examples like New York City Ballet performed 58 ballets this season, including seven world premieres, and not a single one was by a woman. And London's Royal Ballet also did no ballet, excuse me, by women this season on its main stage. And it has not commissioned a new work by a woman for the main stage in this century, which I thought was pretty stark considering how many Mm -hmm. women are in ballet in general. So I thought this was just important to repeat and bring to light as the New York Times already has. And generally speaking, women continue to be underrepresented in all positions of power in the arts, such as Hollywood and orchestras, etc. But considering the prominence of women in the field of ballet, this really is a stark underrepresentation in the ballet world. So they actually then asked a bunch of dance luminaries to weigh in on the absence of female choreographers. And it was Mm -hmm. interesting to see what different people said, but it really just became a listing of like, people seem to be answering the question of why women don't become choreographers rather than talking about the companies themselves that are not hiring the choreographers. So I thought that was interesting too. Um, But some interesting quotes that I thought were noteworthy was one from Pam Tanowitz, who's a choreographer. Um, She said that women have to be cultivated. Why it's not of interest to cultivate women is deeply ingrained in the ballet world historically. Mm -hmm. And there is the famous quote from Balanchine, ballet is woman, well, it's a woman made by a man. (laughs) I thought that was really interesting. Uh And then another quote that I wanted to point out It comes from Kevin McKenzie, who's the artistic director of American Ballet Theater. 
Mm-hmm. And he said in a statement, for ballet choreographers, there are more men because as partners, men tend to be more exposed to the intricacy of the actual structure of choreography and what makes it work, while the women mm. tend to be the face of it. Women are more focused on extending themselves with trust in a partner who help facilitate their expression. Um, and I have to be honest, when I first read that, that was my least favorite quote because right. <laughs> it just creates this hierarchy. Like, And it's interesting that right. he's the director of American Ballet Theater, and this is actually how he thinks. And he's proud of this thought because he said this in an interview for the New York Times. So he's basically saying that men understand the intricacy of the actual structure of choreography more than women. And so obviously if the director of ABT thinks this way, how are we going to create any... Evolve. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I won't go (laughs) too much longer into this, but I thought it was just a really interesting conversation to bring up with you. And based on your experience in interviewing different types of people in the dance world. What are your thoughts on this conversation and what do you think might be some things that these larger companies can do to level the playing field? Well, I I think that what's nice is it seems like it's being more exposed lately. Now, mind you, every year that I'm involved in the world of dance is the more that I'm learning more about it. So, it may have been in the conversation for years, but I've just been, you know, I feel like I'm really in my infancy infancy stages of understanding something. So I'm, you know, I'm reading about the world of dance all the time now, but that's only literally been for two and a half years. So it may have been in the conversation for years before this, I don't know, but it feels like because maybe I'm more aware of things now that there are many articles being written about it. So my hope is because of that, that um, it is changing and it's going to have some change. But then I did a series way back um, toward the beginning of my podcast. It was called um, Women in Choreography Series. And one of the women that I did interview, who's in my opinion more of a seasoned choreographer, is a Helen Pickett. So in my opinion, she would have a much stronger, a more accurate idea about it. But some of the other ones, like Jessica Lang, who I know you interviewed as well, or Emery Lacrone, I feel like some of these folks are really becoming up and comers. And um, I think that maybe over time it will happen. But I know from talking to Emery that it's tough to break into the quote unquote real companies, you know? And so, but I think that it's it's happening. Um, I mean, Jessica's done some works on PNB, and that's a really big deal. Now, I guess the question is, are they then not permanent in-house choreographers? I don't know. But um, I think that it feels like more is happening. Same with women as artistic directors. It seems like that's expanding, too. So maybe it's just a, a slow growth of time, you know? you got to age out of some of the old opinions. And it's interesting. I always like reading the comments section of these types of articles. And yeah, there were some people who said that they wanted the conversation to be defined more accurately. Um, and basically, they're stating that in local dance scenes, women are actually represented very well as choreographers and oh, for sure. definitely as modern dance choreographers and contemporary choreographers. But it's right. really... I think more contemporary for sure. Definitely. And 
but it's definitely these larger companies that even though these local scenes are thriving and full of great female mm-hmm. choreographers we've interviewed some so have you like Jessica Lang and mm-hmm. Lonnie Landon it's just interesting that still these larger ballet companies are not hiring more of them and what will that right. take and maybe it takes this conversation Yeah, that's a good point. Out of curiosity, because it sounds like there are some people weighing in on different sides of the debate in terms of whether there are fewer women entering uh, choreography or pursuing it, um, or whether there are more barriers to their pursuing it, uh, Mm -hmm. even if they want to. I just, do you, um, I guess just based on your memory, have many of your female dancer guests expressed an interest in choreography or has that come up? I, I don't, it's never come up, you know, I guess unless mm. they're like already a choreographer, I don't really yeah. ever go there. Yeah. I guess because that hasn't really been in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Nope. nope <laughs> but um, no, I've never asked that question. I, I do know that some of the people that I've interviewed um, had choreographic experience Hmm. in in their summer programs or in their year-round programs so mm-hmm. i do know that there there's an interest of it but um i've never i've not asked that question yeah yeah and we've actually we realized that we've interviewed a lot of female choreographers yeah actually, naturally we didn't do it on purpose yeah. <laughs> that's we've funny and we've interviewed fewer just dancers. straight dancers but mm-hmm. but oh interesting when we yeah. will i guess we'll, we'll see maybe we'll see if they mention an interest in choreography right. and, yeah and yeah that. yeah i think it's you know i think it's got to somehow be in most people right i mean that that are good dancers mm-hmm. or excellent dancers i mean there's got to be something in you but maybe that's just a something that's only within certain people i don't know like I think about if I know that at some of these programs um, that the, the kids have an opportunity to kind of create a piece or whatever, and some volunteer and some don't. Like again, my daughter's mm-hmm. friend was at not Saratoga, but what's the other one in upstate New York? Why she was she was an apprentice there last summer, and they had a choreographic. Um, you know, like comp, not competition, but like an opportunity to, to choreograph on other members of the company. So it's kind of cool. So I think that at some of these programs, they do encourage yeah. that. Yeah. And then others, they don't. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I think, um, so it seems like generally speaking, opportunities are there for dancers to learn. And if you have an interest, you'll follow it anyway. But mm-hmm. I'm really seeing this conversation as the beginning of pointing the finger at the larger institutions and saying, it really is now time for them to address this disparity and to mm-hmm. just hire female choreographers. <laughs> it's actually that right, easy. Right. Well, I wonder too, though, I mean, these kinds of trends come from all over. And I know one thing that's always stuck in my mind from one of my political science classes in college is uh, that far fewer women think to enter politics. It's this sort of huge, uh, ambitious, almost narcissistic thing to take on. Um, Mm -hmm. So not only do fewer women kind of push themselves into it, even if they have the thought in the back of their head I think it's sort of like fewer women will bring that thought from the back of their head to the forefront and be like oh yeah I should try and fewer are encouraged to do it whereas a lot of men will have someone come up to them and say hey you know you should think of running for office and that's 
part of just as much of a sexist trend. And I wonder, this is pure speculation, I just wonder if that's something that's similarly playing out in the dance world because it's so scary to do something like choreograph. As someone with an extensive dance background, I think of choreography in my head when I listen to music I love. And I feel this yearning to create it, but I I feel that I'm not a choreographer and I would not be able to stitch together enough steps to make a full piece. And maybe the difference is that instead of taking that leap, I assume I couldn't do it and hold myself back. Whereas maybe more men are like encouraged and someone says, hey, you should do this. Hey, I think you can. Hey, try it. I don't know. I just wonder if that plays into it. And so maybe it's an even bigger kind of issue that we have to deal with and helping to encourage young women who might have that talent to be ambitious and be bold and um, it's not even on them to be bold it's like on other people to recognize that they should be encouraged right so I don't right. know well, that makes total sense it's a thought <laughs> but anyway yeah, I do feel like there's an evolution happening happening but then again I don't ever quite know because I just always wonder if it's because I'm for the first time paying attention yeah I wonder that too I mean even growing up in dance I mean it's still hard to keep you know on top of all the trends so right yeah all right well thank you so much this has been thank you guys so much too really great yeah so interesting I love talking to another podcaster who's done things so differently but (laughs) encountered some similar things Yeah. yeah yeah in fact um Another one that just started podcasting, she was a guest of mine, and originally she was going to come on the network, but then I think that she wants to kind of, well, I don't, I don't know the reason behind it, but she's really, really um, up on all social medias, but it's uh, Rebecca King with Miami City Ballet, so she just started a podcast, too, with another guy there. Is that Movers and shaker, Shapers? No. Oh, mm-hmm. different one. Okay. It is called, I can't <laughs> right. remember. Well, we'll find it. My, yeah, it's good, though. It's good. Awesome. We'll put it on our Great. website. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks you guys.